0: The Tone Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello everybody, welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Tim and I will be your host today. Sadly, Renee had to drop out of this interview at the last minute. Renee, Teresa and I have all been super busy with our day jobs and we've been having a really hard time finding a time when we can all be free. But do not fret, they are not here, but we have a cracking lineup today with me. We're going to be talking to the crew of the new documentary called The Cave. It's been picked up by National Geographic, and it is deservedly going to be getting a theatrical release. It covers the story of a hospital in eastern Ghouta, Syria, that has been bombed to pieces, but is still operating out of the sub-basements of the structure. It is a harrowing film that is a tough watch, but the film is worth every moment. One of the driving forces in the film is the sound, and we are lucky enough to have four members from the crew talking with us today, and I have a million questions for them, so let's get started. First up is re-recording mixer and supervising dialogue editor Lars Gensel. Lars, looking over your IMDb page, is there a language that you have not mixed in? It seems like you've done every language possible. Uh no,
1: I'm sure there's something. I mean, there's so many languages out there. I think I've definitely touched base on all continents, uh, if that makes sense. So, I love voices. I love languages. It's it's kind of music, so that's great.
0: So next up, we have the sound editor on the cave, Rena Eid. Rana is talking to us today from Beirut.
2: Yeah, I'm in Beir- Beirut, yes.
0: You come to this project not long after directing a documentary. How did your experience directing influence your sound work?
2: In fact, the sound work influenced my directing uh, experience I had. It was a sound-driven documentary about Beirut underground and what's happening underground Beirut and after the war, after the 15 years civil war. So uh, it's interactive, you know. I'm still a sound designer. I'm still now I'm writing another documentary, but it's
0: all it's all related. I don't know which are influencing more. Also joining us is Tim Nielsen, who did the Atmos mix of The Cave over at Skywalker Ranch. Not a lot of docs on your IMDb page recently. You've got Moana, Solo, A Star Wars Story, the Dark Crystal series. You've been dealing with a lot of fantasy lately. The Cave is really big change of pace. Was that a welcome change, Tim?
3: Yeah, it's always... I've really only done one documentary before working on The Cave with Peter and Lars. That was quite a few years ago. Yeah, it's definitely um, a nice change of pace. It's something completely different, but in the end, it's still storytelling and it's still, all the sound work we're doing is still to that common purpose. So it's a different application of what we know how to do, but in the end, it's still lots of volume faders and storytelling. So...
0: Finally, we have our returning champion, Peter Albrechtson. If you want to know more about Peter, check out our episodes 103 or 78. He's one of our all-time favorite guests. Peter was the sound designer and sound super on The Cave. Welcome back, Peter. It's always good to talk to you.
4: Thank you so much, and hello from Copenhagen.
0: (laughs) Hello from Copenhagen. Yeah, we should mention that everybody in this conversation is in a different country, so it's excellent to get all international here. Yeah. I'd like to tell you guys all about my experience seeing the film. Peter mentioned on social media that he worked on this film and that it was playing at the Toronto International Film Festival. And since I live in Toronto, I went and got a ticket, and I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. But after I saw it, I can tell you, I loved this film. I loved the sound work in this film. It's not an easy film, but it is a really important film. I wanted to do everything I could to help encourage others to see it, so I'm glad that we were all able to get together to talk today, because I think it's a film that needs to be seen by as many people as possible. Throughout the rest of this interview, we're going to be talking about the sound work on it, and it's really interesting sound work, and I'm sure we're going to have a lot of fun with that. But before we get into the sound, I just want to say that this film as a whole is a work of art, and I really want to encourage everyone to go see it in a theater, if you can, and just let it wash over you. There's something really special about seeing a film like this with others all around you. You will all cry together, your hearts will all break together, you will even laugh a bunch of times in this film, which you might not expect if you've seen the trailer but you will leave the theater together in bewilderment, and it's a communal experience that I want everyone to try and find a way to get out there. So Peter, can you please tell us, for the people who haven't seen the film yet, why the sound design and the mix is so important to the story being told in the cave?
4: The director, Firas Fayyad, uh, who's Syrian, but lives in Denmark, he contacted me like a year and a half ago in January last year, we met up and he already at that point had all these very visionary ideas for how the sound should be in this film. I mean, he had really realized that as it's a movie where so much is taking place underground and you hear the war going on above the ground, it's so much about listening and it's so much about like really creating a sonic world around the characters. He already had like some surprisingly specific ideas for how like different elements should have specific sounds and so on. And he also said that he really wanted to mix this film in Atmos because he wanted to have this feeling that the wall was going on above you. So yeah, already at that point, he had all these ideas, which meant that for me as the sound designer, I could already start getting a lot of material and getting hold of sounds and gathering this amazing crew that's been on the film and so on. So there's been time for all of that. And then we started working on the sound while they were picture editing. It was quite interesting because like, the material was really strong. So when you started seeing the first cuts, it felt strong already, but it was almost like a reportage in a way. You were kind of following the actions and, that was quite strong in itself. But what Ferraz really wanted to do was to make the film very subjective. So I remember, like, Lars was the first one I got on the crew and we talked together. And I remember our first conversations, Lars, where we were like, okay, because Lars started up cleaning dialogue. It was, the the production sound was horrible on this film because of the way it's shot and so on. (laughs) So it sounded really, really bad. And it, there was so much work in just cleaning that up. So when you just started to getting a feel of how does this sound when it's cleaned up a little bit, at least, then you could kind of feel, ah OK, this is it's very strong material. But then Ferraz really wanted to push it away from being just a repertoire, but being very cinematic and being very subjective.
1: Well, and, and maybe if I can add to that, the first version that I saw was really very still very reportage like and Peter told me that for us was looking for this subjective approach and and so I thought about that and vividly remember the first conversation uh the three of us had together via Skype for us was in Peter's studio and we talked about things and just from that short Skype call it was clear that we're we're not bending things a little bit beyond the reportage thing but we're going we want to try to go deeply into the minds of the protagonists. We want to put the the audience into their situation, which really meant like, okay, we had planned to, to clean up the, uh, the production track as much as possible, so we have all the options later on, but it really meant we had to think about, like, what's the emotional path we're leading now? What's really happening? What is it that we want to tell in terms of emotions and in terms of the subjective uh, experience for, for Armani and her team, uh, which is a very, very dramatically different thing than just presenting the, the order of events?
3: Yeah, I think when I first saw it, I was pretty struck by how sort of gut-wrenchingly real it is on one level, but how, I wouldn't call it experimental, but how highly stylized and highly orchestrated as a film. And, you know, what Frost was clearly trying to do was to give you this experience of being in this place, not just physically, but psychologically and emotionally and everything that goes along with it. And so I thought it was a a daunting film in that regard to try to, uh, you know, you're taking footage that's very gritty and the production audio, as was mentioned, was very rough and everything. And a lot of times if you were going to try to do something highly stylized, you know, Errol Morris style or something, you'd kind of want to start with something very clean. So I found it a really interesting attempt to sort of take something this gritty and also take it in a very stylized, subjective direction.
0: Most movies that I go to, when I look back on them, I think, you know, if I had been given the budget, the time, I would have made similar decisions. I would not have made the decisions that were made in the cave at all, And I mean that in the most complimentary way. You went places with the sound that are unexpected, and they work in an emotional way, in a evocative way. And yet they still feel like they somehow could have been real, even though if you detach a little bit, you're like, well, what is that sound? But it's devastatingly getting into your heart in a way that sound doesn't normally do. And I frankly wouldn't even know where to begin to do that.
4: It's interesting because like this was also the reason for me getting in touch with Rana about the film because I watched Rana's own movie, Panoptic, and it had this very musical approach to sound while at the same time being a portrait of a city during wartime. And for me, it was so important to have someone there who like actually knew what it was like to be in a war like this. And at the same time, also, it's women who are in uh, charge of this hospital. So I thought that the female perspective on the film was very important. We had a dialogue editor from Sweden, uh, Theodor Flick, and then we had Rana. And uh, Rana, I mean, when you started on this, this was like, you didn't even... start cutting on the final version of the film you started on an earlier version on the film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember like you just I mean we're having some very early talks and then you were just like, okay I'll just go for this <laughs> and uh, and then just like building and building and building so I mean building a lot of sound so we I mean so many layers it was really that was really great. <laughs> Thank you Peter. <laughs> and we're a team that's so widespread. I counted and it was like we have, it's 12 different nations. So it's people from 12 different nations
0: on this sound crew. It's pretty amazing actually. So Rena, what were your thoughts when you first saw the film?
2: To be honest, because I come from a war zone, so these images, I've been growing up with those images and I've been there because uh, during the Beirut war, the Lebanon war, I was in the shelters most of the time. And the Syrian war was, uh, Syria is a very close country uh, and it's politically it's extremely um, affecting the situation in Lebanon. So uh, we are seeing those images every day. And uh, for me it was very important not to, as the documentary wanted to be, not to have a reportage, because on the news you can see the atrocities. But what do we feel about the atrocities? And what is the sound of the atrocity? And for me, it was very important to hear the identity of the place, because for us in the Middle East, we have a problem of identity. And how I treat sound in the films I work with, and especially in my film, Panoptic, was to recreate the identity of our own countries. I was completely moved because it is about an underground place, and we lived in the shelters and we were hearing bombs. And I was extremely happy when Peter called me about it and asked me to do the sound edit because I was trying first to really do the you know the basics, uh, what you hear and the ambiences. But I have a lot of ambiences between Lebanon and Syria about uh, the war and how d- the perspective of of the war that's why i think i put so much layers because i wanted to have the reality of it and then the perspective i have towards those sounds especially the perspective yeah <laughs> it was very <laughs> emotional to be honest extremely emotional
3: yeah i think it was not an easy film for any of us to yeah to watch or work on it was rewarding you know it's it's that thing i mean i i when i worked on it, it was basically nine very intense days straight and it was you're very fatiguing to sort of have to watch this over and over and over again, but you recognize how important it is. But it, but yeah, I think it's impossible to work on something like this without being deeply moved by it. And
1: I just wanted to catch up what Rana mentioned layers sort of mix between being emotional and yet abstract. And I think layers is the key to that because Peter and Rana and the whole editorial team they've put up layers of layers of sound, of very factual layers, and then yet yeah, sounds that would. Bend towards the abstract and then something abstract. And so the thing and the key was really to try and find the way through these layers to still remain something that seems plausible and completely believable, but yet becomes this stylized subjective experience.
3: Yeah, and I think one of the tricky things sometimes is this film, there were a lot of opportunities to sort of make your own moments to be stylized. The film itself didn't necessarily. You know, some things you'll see visually very much dictate the style of the sound, very clear when you're going in and out of stylized moments or things. Well, this, because of the footage, isn't quite that way. There are clearly moments like that, but there are also moments that Peter and Lars just kind of invented and found ways to really cleverly move in and out of those things. And, you know, a lot of that was established by the time I sort of came on board to help. I Just so everybody's clear, Lars mixed the vast majority of the film, and I kind of came on at the end to sort of be a pinch hitter a little bit and uh, help out. It's a film that's very much open to interpretation, to and that was great. You know, we'd be working on it, and kind of there were a lot of what ifs, Peter. What if we did this? You know, what if we tried this? What if we tried this? And there was a lot of experimentation, even even late in the game. I think that's wonderful when it can happen. You know, it doesn't always. Sometimes there's a luxury, but on this film, even if it was a pretty short schedule for our side of it and things it was still up to the last minute. We just kept going, okay, well, what, you know, what if we tried this in this scene? What would be the effect of that? Let's try it. And how do we think? What does that make us feel? Do we? Is it moving us in and out of uh, Amani's head or is it pushing us away or things like that? So when you have that experimentation, again, as Lars pointed out, you need just a lot of material to work with and you have to be able to just go, okay, well, let's let's take that out. Let's take out the realistic sound and let's throw this in. And, and one thing I love about working with Peter is that you sort of can't be too sort of crazy for Peter is just, just throw up the most random sort of obscure sound. Well, for example, the Russian jets that we tried to sort of at the last minute come up with something. And I happened to have the sound that was just like, almost like pure screaming distortion. And it was, you know, one of the most unpleasant sounds you would ever want to listen to. And we put it up against the jets and we were like, that was kind of like the missing piece to just give you this, just terror of this sound of these planes that, again, it's not a realistic sound. But psychologically, this is—you know—these people are enduring this day after day after day, and so it's fun to be able to sort of. You can't sort of experiment too much on a film like this, in a way.
4: It's one of the sounds that that Ferraz kept talking about, and he wanted, like, he talked about sound as a trauma, like sound that that would traumatize you, and for him, like, experiencing—I mean, he's exper- been experiencing those sounds in Syria for him this was a sound that was a physical kind of attack a thing that should turn on like every kind of traumatic aspect of being him so it was really like we worked a lot on getting like the right jets and the right sounds for everything but then often like building on that so in the film there's we spend a lot of time on getting a lot of different material also just like hospital sounds like the, the right kind of lo-fi hospital sounds, or the ambiences, or background sounds from Syria, and background sounds from the war, and, and Ferrar said, like, radio recordings from from the hospital, uh, like, where you could hear the war going on and so on. So there were all these elements, but often we kind of then took that to kind of the next level and brought, brought in, like, Tim is saying, like, this crazy distorted element that became a part of the jet sound. And that was really what Firas was looking for. He was looking for something that that felt authentic, but also kind of made it into something that was not just like at that time and that point of time, but it was also something that everyone should be able to relate to on an emotional level when you
3: watch the film.
4: Traumatizing sound.
3: I like that expression. (laughs) Traumatic sound injuries, that's what we're going for.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I want to say something
2: about the traumatic sound, which is extremely authentic in a way, because when you are in the war and you can't see the war, you're, you're, because Amani and the crew, they, are, they can't see it, they, they are hearing it. It is exactly like that, so it is authentic in a way, because I experienced that, and at some point you don't know what those sounds are, and you imagine sounds at some point because there was, there's the reverberation of everything and everything is rattling and everything is moving. You don't know what's those sound. And we always said this during the war. What is this sound? You don't recognize the sound. So it was extremely authentic in a way. I, it was layers of sound and we did some unrealistic sound, but it is this in reality. So it is traumatic and authentic in a
1: way. The footage for us gets is from the underground hospital and it's very raw it's very factual documentary kind of thing so the way to turn the whole film into a subjective experience is by using sound and he was always very clear about that and he always knew he wanted to do it with sound by knowing his his tools as a filmmaker
3: i think that uh, one good example of that at the very end of the film there's sort of this underwater montage which is kind of open for interpretation to some degree, but for us had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do. And the final shot of this is this surfacing shot going from deep in the ocean up to the surface. I remember Peter and I got the notes back from for us. And, and the note of that shot was this shot has to convey the sort of deepest despair of humanity to like the highest hope of humanity. And you're sort of going, okay, what the heck do we do for that? You know, <laughs> <laughs> we're sort of scratching our head a little bit and we go, Okay, it's clear what he's trying to do, and it's incredibly ambitious. And he's asking us to try and help, and so we did our best, and we got as close as we could. And but these are the kind of things that for us was you know it's a very ambitious film in that regard. It's very he's you know clearly uh, interested and in not compromising, just going for it. You know he's fearless in that regard. You know you'd have these talks with him, and he would just just he just was so full of ideas and ambition in this film and that that's infectious you know you just go okay we got to figure this out What is that sound what's it going to be and so we've worked on it for a while and we got something and he's sort of like yeah that's you know this is the, the right idea you know probably didn't sell that exactly people aren't going to watch the film and know exactly what that is but we sort of conveyed the emotion he wanted at least.
4: It's, it's very rare that that Firas is kind of saying, okay, I want a door there, and then she touches that button, then could I have a beep there? And then he's he's not talking about sound that way, he's talking about it like a poet. So it's much more like, it's a much more abstract way of of talking about sound and talking about the storytelling. And that takes some getting used to, but it's also super inspiring because it kind of, makes you very associative with the sound. And I think that also inspired this way of working with the sound design that it's there's so many associations. Like, okay, if you hear a bomb on top of the ground, then what happens? Then you have like the gritty rock, some earth movement. Then you have the vibration of material. Then you have something that is almost like an earthquake. And then you have something inside the hospital vibrating. And then, I mean, So the way you start thinking about sound is much more like associations and becomes much more abstract, which I really love. And it's a really interesting way of working with sound because it becomes something that is really like an integrated part of the emotion of the film. It's not just like factual sound, it's
1: emotional sound. Yeah, and it gets out of this, this sort of logic of, working on all the details in a one plus one way and maybe you end up with two uh, but maybe you end up with one and a half if you just do it one plus one if you approach everything in this emotional way where you just see the the big overall and you don't know how to get there you'll figure it out and you'll get way more way beyond one plus one just to mention another important aspect of the sound which
4: is the foley because the dialogues were so rough and so, so lo fi that Heike Kossi, the Finnish Foley artist, he did Foley for the film and he did like Foley for everything. It was, there's a lot of Foley in this film, which is so rough and just feels like production sound. I mean, I know what Heike does is that he often records with like microphones off mic and he does all these tricks to kind of make it feel real but because the production sound was pretty much only dialogue, and often not even dialogue because it was so, I mean, it was incredibly rough. Then suddenly, if you have the Foley that can kind of cover all the movements, then suddenly it feels like at least there's a little more life in the production. I mean, suddenly it, it, it becomes much more textured and much more interesting to listen to. And it's quite amazing what the Foley did in this film. And you won't even notice it.
3: I would say like too, I've never worked on a film that there there was some ADR done for the film because there was some production that was so rough that it really had to be replaced or in some cases because some the director wanted to go somewhere very stylized, we had to get sort of a clean version. But I remember inheriting the film L- Lars's message was, well, I've tried to destroy the ADR, you know, as much as I could to make it match this production, which is almost, you know, unbelievably terrible. And <laughs> so the, uh, most of the mix I spent just trying to destroy the ADR even more to make it fit in with the uh,
1: with the production. The great thing about having all this Foley for uh, a documentary like The Cave is that it's one of the key elements that enables you to focus on things. It enables you to give a sharpened ear on what the audience should be looking for or should be hearing into. And it's it's so key to this. Even if it's played super low, completely mixed in with all the dialogue and everything, it's key to making all this work. There's this moment where one of the other female doctors, uh, she's operating a a baby and everything else fades out, Uh, just the music staying, and the foley of her just doing the operation and it's it's a very fragile moment and you don't notice that it becomes so stylized that it's just that sound and the music but it this is what keeps you in the action plus gives you all the emotion from the music at the same time and it's just one of the things I feel like if you want to engage with sound on a documentary you, you have to talk fully as well so it, it's very important to have this.
3: It's rare that that happens of course if anything the Foley on a documentary is thought of purely in regards to delivering a potentially a fully filled, uh, you know, m later or something. It's not really often thought of creatively in a lot of documentaries. But I I know in Peter's work, it's always been a key element. And uh, that's one of the things I've always admired about, like, the documentary work that Peter's done is that it's – he doesn't approach it from that, oh, we're just going to fill in the holes and try to smooth out the dialogue and, and you know, just make it presentable. But he sort of approaches it as you would any feature film. It's sort of everything's on the table. Anything is fair game, you know, to try and.
0: Yeah. yeah. Let's talk a bit about uh, your process. So Peter, you mentioned earlier that the director came to you with the idea of Atmos right away. If you watch the footage, this movie doesn't scream, let's give this an Atmos mix. You know what I mean? We think of Atmos as associated with the big superhero movies and the big budget movies. The uh, kind of, this isn't found footage, but it has a bit of that reportage found footage vibe. You don't immediately associate an Atmos mix with that kind of imagery. But having seen it in Atmos... I can't imagine seeing it not in Atmos. It, it affects the story massively. So how did you guys plan for that? Walk me through that, everybody.
4: It was Firas's original idea. I mean, it was like for the first, very first meeting I had with him, he talked about this should be Dolby Atmos. I mean, Firas has a way, like when he's talking about things where you can feel this is a decision already. I mean, this is non-negotiable. This is Dolby Atmos. And it's... Dolby Atmos, no matter what, this is Dolby Atmos. This is a story, like, he wants to tell this in Dolby Atmos. And because he really wanted this feeling that you were in the cave with these characters. And he wanted this feeling like you hear the wall from above you. But when we started editing, I mean, my room is 7.1 and I think Rana's room is the same. Isn't that right, Rana? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's absolutely- yeah. So we started out editing in seven point one, but Lars and I have been working on several atmos mixes now. And what I usually do, and what Werner also did, was that we layer things in a way so that there's so many like different possibilities of things to like expand into the atmosphere when you're mixing. So I mean, usually Lars and I are only working on the films we do, usually like around the mix, maybe doing a bit of dialogue pre-mixing, but for this one, Lars was there from the very beginning. And that was really great because we could start talking about ideas very early on, but the actual Atmos work didn't, I mean, the panning of Atmos didn't start until the actual mix started. Um, So, for me, it's really a, a, that's very much the way I've organized my sessions is that like I have a lot of different layers. We had this whole way of organizing the sessions with a lot of different groups. Everything was organized in a way, so it was easy for Lars to do the Atmos mix from all these elements because there were like, I mean, 350 effect tracks. I mean, there was a lot of sound in this.
1: In a lot of aspects of the film, you can easily say it, it's pretty much approached as a feature film, like a fiction feature. I started very early on, starting with the dialogue edit together uh, with Theodora, um, who supported me uh, with cleaning things up. Um, at some point, I I did a sort of dialogue premix, um, Five Days in Berlin. And then I came to Copenhagen and we started sort of the real main mix or the, the first pass of the mix. That, that's where we started with all the Atmos uh, mix, basically. From the template that uh, Peter and I had developed on the cave, it's easy for me then to just pull things out into Atmos tracks and, and start moving them as objects so we can do that fairly quickly. And then for the for the whole mix process, then once we we did a first mastering in Copenhagen, which then we sent over to Tim, then Tim took it over to the final version.
3: Yeah, so I came on to the project pretty late. I mean, I, I know Peter and Lars and I had talked earlier on at one point, you know, schedules are always changing about us maybe all working together on the film and then. I was just finishing Dark Crystal. I think when, when the first schedule was going to be for the mix, and I, did, I was I needed a break after that, and so they ended up doing the mix Copenhagen, and then just again because of scheduling and time and everything, they needed some helping hands. So the, they Lars put everything together in this couple of huge packages on a spare and sent it over to us, and a couple of mix techs at Skywalker, Daniel Dupree, and Jeff King helped do an amazing job of you know basically recreating the mix in a mixer room there and making sure that you know it was all working and matching and playing and everything, and. And Lars and I talked several times. And I pestered him with many questions because looking into somebody else's mixed session is sort of like looking directly into somebody's brain. <laughs> it's sort of if your brain doesn't work the same way, you're sort of like, what, 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 what? Where is this going? I don't. What is this track doing? And so once we a couple of days, we got up and running, and um, I got comfortable enough in the session that I felt like I could work without you know uh, with my hands tied behind my back. So luckily, we had a couple of days like that where we could really just make sure that we were now, we had the handoff complete and we were able to work and work quickly. And Peter then flew over and we, I spent a few days before Peter arrived working on the film and um, working on some ideas of my own or just making notes or just making sure I knew where everything was and really understanding what their intent was with the film. Uh, And then Peter and I worked really a long over, uh, what was it Memorial Day weekend? We worked a long weekend, Labor Day weekend, sorry. and there were long days and we just um, we just kind of tried to finish it off. But I mean, again, the, the groundwork was completely laid over in Copenhagen. And so by the time we got there, it was kind of like it was nice to have just several days of kind of a clean, fresh approach going, OK, the film was totally releasable as it was. It was done. You know, they had a prep to mix. It was ready for the Toronto Film Festival and if that had gone out, it would have been just as brilliant. And so then it was just like, okay, well now we have some more days to just refine it and try some more ideas and really try to focus in on a couple of areas where for really wants to try and do something in a very stylistic way for this. And maybe we can push it a little further. And so um, that was sort of my contribution was just to help with that a bit at the end. And, um, and then we prepared the match and we shipped it back to Lars and uh, he recreated it again to do all the deliverables and everything back in Berlin. So it's pretty amazing the technology allows you to do these things these days to sort of pick up a mix and move it across the ocean for a week and ship it back and finish it up there.
4: It's also worth talking about the music and the whole setup for that, because like uh, Matthew Herbert, who did the score, he did a really wonderful work on that. But he got actually in very late in the process, but was really open for like, OK, let's keep on developing ideas Uh He did a really great work on the score, but he also, the music mixer, Graham Stewart, who also mixes the the scores for Johnny Greenwood, came over to the mix with Lars and me in Copenhagen and was part of that as a music editor. And... That meant that we could k- keep on like refining music and sound together. We really had a great process of like, when do we play the music? When do we play the sounds? When can the sounds kind of seek into the music and so on? One of the first things Matthew asked for was like, could you send over some of the sound effects libraries that you have, like sound effects recordings? One of these were like this amazing library of vibrating metal from that Nathan Moody did that we, we got... Got, got implanted like in the film. And he apparently, then he used that for some of the abstract elements in the music. So there's, I mean, the music, when you hear it at first, it can seem very classical, but it also has all these like ab- abstract elements to it. And some of that is actually built from sound effects. So it was a very tight process, but at the same time, there's a lot of details and a lot of textures in that to
0: kind of dig into. There were moments in the film where it felt to me like the piano or something was at the front, and then when like cello would come in, it would envelop the entire room. Is that something that you guys kind of did? Doesn't probably do it that much. Um
1: I mean the the way Graham mixed the music, um, There were a couple
3: places, Lars, in the in the end though where we did actually do some pretty dramatic pulling of the strings and things into the surrounds in a couple cues, especially later in the film. There were not a lot, but there were a couple of places where we did break apart the The five one a little bit and take the left rights and move them back and kind of pan them from front to back and back to front and kind of create some movement in them, particularly in the underwater sequences. I know we did a fair amount of that, and there were a couple other places I know we did experiment a little bit with that got a little crazy with the music don't tell don't tell anybody else
1: how dare you
3: <laughs> it was peter's fault it was all peter's fault
1: yeah definitely it's always peter's fault
3: you know me Lars i'm a i'm a conservative i would never do something like that but peter he's like you know what just put it in the back and i'd be like peter no we're going to get in trouble
1: <laughs> no but but it it's the thing like we didn't have time for a lot of experimentation on the music while we were in Copenhagen so The main focus has been on like getting things right in terms of level, in terms of interaction with all the other elements. And so it's great if you have this extra little bit in the end where you can definitely take it yet another step. Like Tim said, Okay, then let's move it, move it around and try all these things, which we definitely didn't have any time for anymore. I
3: think it's always beneficial to have somebody else look at your work. I mean, I always benefit from showing my work to other people or on the ranch or different people. And. Just to have a second pass on it with new eyes and ears or a little bit of time in between is always a benefit, which is you know rarely gotten these days. So the foundation was completely built. And so then it was just like, okay, we have this luxury of having another set of time. What else can we do? And so uh, that was there was a creative freedom in that that was nice.
4: When I said that Firas had this vision for the sound in the very beginning, then at the same time, he's also very open for new ideas along the way like something like uh, Amani's voiceover that is now in like at least a handful of places in the film that was never in the edit so that was something that was invented during the sound we went to Istanbul in Turkey to record her voiceover and some other stuff that some extra lines and stuff and We didn't really know, okay, how is she going to, I mean, how is her voice going to be for, like, a voiceover? Will that work? How will it feel? And then you heard her, this very fragile, beautiful voice. Yeah, she's got an amazing voice. Whoa, this works so well. And suddenly that turned into an element of the sound. And that was something that was, like, invented, like, two weeks before going to the mix it's also been a process where we constantly been trying out new things. So there was a lot of visions for what we wanted to do, but there was also lots of like, okay, how about this? Or how about that? Or... So it's been a lot of like developing and shaping really like this idea of, you. I mean, you're building a statue and you're putting on new elements all the time. And in that sense, for me, it was perfect to kind of, be away from the film for a week or a little more in the end, and then come back and mix. I finalize the mix with Tim and have fresh ears because it's also a really, really, really tough movie. And when you keep on working on it, it's you almost get numb at some point. And by going away for a few days and then coming back, it was like suddenly I could become emotional about it again. Um Yeah.
2: Yeah, in fact, I had this because I worked like two to three weeks on the film and I've always had the the feeling that I'm not working enough because I was always like working one hour, two hours and then leaving the studio and go have a walk. You need to, to get out of the room and then come back and then get... It's like I've been working on the film for like six months, but actually I... Work like two weeks and a half. So yeah, it was very emotional.
0: I believe it, having just sat through it for... how What's the running time? An hour, 40 minutes, something like that?
3: 90 minutes, something 90 like that
0: long, yeah. yeah. It was a tough 90 minutes, but as I mentioned in the intro, it is worth every moment of those 90 minutes. It is uh, a really powerful film that uh, it's kind of at the same time about the worst of humanity and also the best of humanity having a kind of a battle against each other. It's really really worth the watch.
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just rewatched the beginning just a few days ago and it starts out with these bombings and then it just goes underground and you start out just hearing a very quiet kind of city ambience. And then these bombs go off, which are like really loud. And then the camera kind of goes down underground. And I mean, having so many details, and so many textures travelling down underground and then at the end you hear something that is like a heartbeat and it, so it goes from something that is like total destruction into something that is very human and emotional and i i just thought that that opening in itself it's such a bold move from firas it's like really kind of showing you like the whole film in kind of one shot going from war to, like, the very core of
1: human nature and all these very powerful emotions that are in the film. As we just talked about how how hard it might be to, to work on the film, I always found it very encouraging to kind of keep going, seeing Amani having done her work, because, I mean, that's so much harder, and yet she's doing it again and again and again, because there is no choice. But to be human and to give this, this sense of humanity, of hope, especially to children, um, I, I found that super inspiring and that kept me going for a long while. Just her, Amani as, as a human being, I, I think she's done such an amazing job down there running this hospital, giving hope to all these people. Um, it's just completely mind blowing to me how anyone can do that.
0: When I saw the film at TIFF, uh, Toronto International Film Festival, uh, the director was there and he did a Q&A afterwards and then he stood out in the lobby of the theatre afterwards while everyone was pouring out and uh, everyone was walking by and shaking his hand, congratulating him and I walked up and said how much I love the sound. That's not something directors hear in lobbies after their screenings is talk about the sound. He immediately lit up with a smile. This film is a somber film, so it wasn't like everyone was laughing in, in the lobby afterwards. Everyone's being very quiet and being respectful. And then when I said the sound of this film was amazing, he just lit up... And he started talking to me about the sound. And he is proud of the work you guys did. And it was a genuine thing. He wasn't just uh, blowing smoke. He is, he loves the way this film sounds. With this podcast, we're lucky enough that when I see a film, I'm able to go try and track those people down and have them on the show. So almost everybody that we've ever had on this podcast is on because of something they did that inspired me or, uh, you know, tipped something in my brain. But this is a film that I... I'm worried not enough people are gonna see, and I really hope that everyone listening goes out of their way to find a way to see it, because it's uh, it's definitely a, a gem. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim.
3: Yeah, thanks for getting us all together. It's a, yeah. always a pleasure to get to work with all these people around the world, and then to get to come together and talk about it, and things too. And
4: the film is really traveling the world, uh, actually. like. Going to a lot of, I mean, also because National Geographic is really pushing the film. They're doing a lot of work to kind of get it into different countries. So it's going to come out in cinemas in some countries. And also there should be some
0: options for
4: experiencing the film. So
0: that's that's really great. Our website tonebenderspodcast.com to the episode page for this one. There'll be a link to the film's website that has uh, all the screenings available. You can search by country. And uh, date, and obviously, uh, hopefully, you can find a screening near you. Thank, Thank you, you. Thanks so Thank much. You, Thanks boy. for having us. Tone Benders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Moro. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to infotonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tone Benders, and join Tone Benders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or BH, or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening.